0: question. Sure. How sure. long is this going to take? It shouldn't take a whole lot longer. Do you think I can get there before 129? Uh, probably not. What's at 129? Well, I have a project at
1: This is the story of the wrongful conviction of Brendan Dassey. Over the next seven episodes, we re-examine and explore the influences at the heart of this profound miscarriage of justice. Welcome to The Sixth Hour. Years, I've spent hours, days at a time, buried under the weight of the wrongful conviction of a Mishkot High special ed student who had gone to school on February 27, 2006 as an innocent 16-year-old kid, only to be catapulted into adulthood at the hands of local law enforcement when he left as a suspect in one of Wisconsin's most notorious criminal investigations. This miscarriage of justice is Brendan's story.
0: Brendan. (laughs) Go ahead. What do you think is going to happen? What do you think should happen, right? You know, obviously, that we're police officers, okay? And, be, and because of what you told us, we're going to have to arrest you. Did you kind of figure that was coming? For, for, for what you did, we, we can't let you go right now. The law will not let us. And so you're not going to be able to go to home tonight. All right? This is my mom, no? Your mom knows. Your mom is here, okay? Would you like to talk to her? Yeah. Do you have it before we bring her in? Do you have any other questions right now? You do understand that you're under arrest now? So could I call my girlfriend and tell her that I can come today? We'll give you an opportunity to, to, to do that, okay? Did you kind of, I mean, honestly, after telling us what you told us, you kind of figured this was coming? Yeah? This is only for one day We don't know that this
1: time. Would you ever confess to a crime that you didn't commit? Seemingly, most people believe themselves to be of sound mind and judgment and would answer with a resounding no. However, the pressures that are brought to bear within the suffocating confines of the interrogation room, coupled with coercive and presumptive interrogation techniques, may result in even you implicating yourself in a crime you had no prior knowledge of. We all have a breaking point. However, for 16-year-old Brendan Dassey, all that was needed was praise, a feigned parental concern, and a susceptibility to an interrogation technique used to elicit confessions from seasoned adult criminals. This mix was devastating for Brendan, who inculpated himself to please interrogators. His greatest weakness, his greatest crime, was his innocence. On March 1st, 2006, the Mishkot sky threatened snowfall as young Brendan Dassey was literally hours away from being indicted on a first-degree murder charge. Brendan has not been home since that day. We want to be able to tell people that Brendan was honest. He's honest. He's a good guy. He's going to go places in his life. 14 years on, Detective Wiget's words ring hollow. As Brendan didn't get to finish his project, He didn't get to go back to class. Now, Brendan sits in a 8x10 in rural Wisconsin. Brendan is still waiting to go places. In this episode, I discuss Brendan's March 1st statement, which formed the entirety of the case against Brendan, with Dr Richard Leo, a world-leading expert on police interrogation practices, false confessions, the impact of Miranda, and the wrongful conviction of the innocent. Dr. Leo would be the first false confession expert to testify in support of Brendan in his post conviction hearing of 2010. <laughs> the 6 Hour, Dr Leo. On this episode, we take a look at the March 1st statement given by Brendan Dassey, of which we know his life sentence is based entirely on, despite zero evidence linking Brendan to the crime. You're internationally revered as a leading expert on false confessions, police interrogation practices and wrongful convictions, but that doesn't really do justice to your expertise. Can you share a little bit about your background and and what led you into this niche area?
2: Well, thank you um, for that kind introduction, um, Tracy. So uh, when I was an undergraduate in UC Berkeley in the 1980s, there was a high profile local case involving a student who was in my class. I didn't know the student whose girlfriend had disappeared. And six weeks later, the body was found. And everyone, it seems, but especially the police, assumed that he did the crime, even though there was no evidence for it. And he was interrogated for 16 hours, made to confess, immediately recanted his confession. It was selectively recorded. And eventually he was convicted after first being acquitted of most of the charges. His name is Bradley Page. And I firmly believe that he's innocent. Uh, he was never exonerated. The late 1980s and early 1990s was a time where the defense community really wasn't um, up to speed on challenging false confessions. The science hadn't been developed the way it is today. And that was the time when I was uh, getting my PhD and deciding what in the area of law and crime and psychology I was going to do my research on. And uh, so that got me into it. And then when I started my career in the uh, early 19 or mid-1990s, first at uh, the University of Colorado Boulder and then at UC Irvine, I was writing a lot about police interrogation and false confessions. And I started getting contacted by a lot of attorneys and working on a lot of cases. And so in the last two to three decades, I've written dozens of articles and books on the topic of police interrogation, psychological coercion, and false confessions, and wrongful convictions. But I've also worked on hundreds of cases. And so there's been a nice synergy between my casework and my research and my writings and my teaching. And it's really an endlessly fascinating and troubling area for an academic to do research in an area. Really, you need a problem that's counterintuitive, that compels you. And people just don't understand why anybody would falsely confess, uh, which is so counterintuitive. In fact, some people say that it's easier for most people to understand why somebody would commit suicide. They have more experience with it in the sense that they know people who've committed suicide or they thought about it or they read about it. Whereas very few people know someone who actually is falsely confessed. And of course the idea of a false confession, um, is, is, is highly, um, counterintuitive because it seems like such an irrational and self-destructive act And yet, what could be more irrational and self-destructive than suicide, which seems more understandable, if not familiar, territory to most people? So um, one one compelling intellectual problem here is just um, explaining this very counterintuitive phenomena. And then on top of that, why would somebody who falsely confesses get wrongly convicted? A lot of Americans think mistakenly that we have the best criminal justice system in the world, but correctly, that we have a lot of constitutional rights, including privilege against self-incrimination, discovery rights, um, right to effective assistance of counsel, which you'll be discussing on on one of your next upcoming podcasts, um, and so uh, people are are skeptical, not just that an innocent individual would falsely confess, but that our system doesn't have so many safeguards that that false confession would get weeded out. And so that's on the intellectual side. On the social justice side, of course, as you know, following Brendan's case, which I worked on many years ago, uh, these cases just break your heart. You know, the way the system can Ruin people's lives, their jobs, their family relationships, take everything away from them, and so I feel privileged to be able to do research that that can help people out, or has the potential, and to work on cases that has the potential to help innocent people either not get wrongly convicted, or uh, or or get out if they've been wrongly convicted, and in some cases. Get civil judgments if they've been wrongly convicted. Help them in the sense of being a consultant and or an expert witness, not in the sense of being an advocate. Obviously, I'm not a lawyer uh, in these cases. So that's what got me into this and what's kept me into this, what you described, I think, as a niche area.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think it's noting when we talk about why people falsely confess that the National Registry of Exonerations lists more than 2,600 exonerations since 1989, which totals a staggering loss of 23,000 years. Now, 292 of those exonerations feature a false confession. Chunking those numbers down further, 70% of those suffered from a mental illness or intellectual disability. To me, those statistics are appalling. They're an appalling indicator of of either interrogation practices or lack of protections. What would your thoughts be on, the, on, on those type of stats?
2: Well, um, I would say that uh, I do think the documented cases of false confession are the tip of a much larger iceberg. Uh, we don't know how many false confessions are out there because no organization, no government agency keeps track of all the interrogations from which we could then do a random sample or try to investigate every single one if there were resources. Um, And so when you research these false confessions, you have to find the cases. And of course, there are a lot of people in prison who are probably innocent who say they falsely confessed. So we don't really know the rate at which false confessions occur. The National Registry is a great resource um, because it calls attention to reversals in criminal in the criminal justice system, and essentially to error, they their definition of what constitutes an exoneration is not the same as our definition in the um, in the scientific community of what constitutes, say, a proven false confession. But they say any case where there's been a reversal um, of a conviction and new evidence of innocence. And so they believe that the vast majority of those cases are factually innocent. And of course, there's so many of them, not just the ones you mentioned, but also um, they have a list of exonerations before 1989. And then they also have, I believe they call them either group or mass exonerations, uh, which are separate from the individual case exonerations. That's when there are scandals in police departments where groups of individuals are exonerated. The LA, the Los Angeles Rampart scandal, or maybe is the most famous, but there are many other scandals where there are typically corrupt police officers uh, who engineer wrongful convictions, at least in the procedural sense, of an entire group of people. So, um, So those figures are shocking, and they suggests that the problem is potentially far more widespread than um, conservative critics have acknowledged for many years. Uh, And like you said, it's appalling. Um, There's almost nothing more serious than depriving a citizen of their liberty. And the amount of error in the criminal justice system, we simply wouldn't tolerate in a lot of other domains of society. And so it suggests that we have a lot of work to do to improve the accuracy in the American criminal justice system, uh, because we simply can't, it's it's unjust, it's immoral to prosecute and convict large numbers of factually innocent individuals.
1: Yeah. You've worked on many high-profile wrongful conviction cases, such as Marty Tancliffe, Jesse Miss Kelly of the West Memphis Three, two of the Central Park Jogger defendants, the Norfolk Four, and many others. Are there commonalities found across these types of cases?
2: There are com- commonalities, yes. Um, uh, I tend to break them down into three categories conceptually, um, and it it's also helps sequentially to understand these three categories of error so the first i call the misclassification error and in america and we can take brendan dassey as an example as i talk about all three of these errors in america um, police are trained to only interrogate after they've investigated a case and concluded that the person is guilty and so interrogation is guilt presumptive the goal is to get a confession it's not to do a fair-minded interview uh, to figure out whether the person committed the crime. You're supposed to figure out, if you're an American-trained police detective, you're supposed to figure out whether the person committed the crime, or you know, there's, there's a solid foundation to believe that prior to the interrogation. The purpose of the interrogation is to get a confession. So the, another way of saying this is interrogation is designed... In America, for guilty people, police detectives trained in the Reed method of American interrogation are supposed to only interrogate somebody who's guilty. And so when they interrogate somebody who's innocent, they've misclassified an innocent person as guilty. So the question is, well, why does that first error happen? And it's either lazy or sloppy investigation, um, reliance on the wrong cues like body language or how somebody behaves, The subjective and often erroneous interpretation of a police officer's interpretation of whether somebody behaved like they think a guilty person should or an innocent person should, Um, or maybe their belief in the sixth sense, a sixth sense where they can just intuit whether somebody's innocent or guilty. But one pattern is this misclassification that they erroneously determine in their mind that somebody who is factually innocent is in fact guilty, and then they launch into an interrogation that can be psychologically coercive and break somebody down, cause them to think they really don't have a free choice but to agree to or give a false confession. Um, we call this, or I call this, the, the, the coercion error. Um, and in Brandon's interrogation, uh, as you know, there were some strong pressure tactics that were arguably psychologically coercive. He certainly described them that way, um, and. Part of the coercion error involves individual vulnerabilities. Some individuals, like Brendan, who was a juvenile, um, who had lower level cognitive and intellectual functioning, are at greater risk for psychologically coercive interrogation, greater risk for making or agreeing to a false confession. So a second pattern is what we call the, the, the coercion or psychological coercion error. Um, And certain techniques that communicate leniency or threat or excessively long interrogations uh, or lies about evidence, what we call false evidence ploys, police are allowed to lie and pretend they don't have evidence. In America and some other countries, even when they don't have that evidence, all those techniques increase the risk that an innocent person will falsely confess, just like some personality traits, youth, mental illness, um, low iq you mentioned um you mentioned some of these also increase the risk so all of that's under the the coercion error Um, maybe we should call it the coercion individual vulnerability error and then the third error that you see in police interrogation leading to false confessions and wrongful convictions is what we call the contamination error and of course brendan's case is famous for this right the, the leaking and disclosure of non-public case facts to the suspect, who then parrots them back, causing the police and the prosecutor, sometimes juries, sometimes appellate courts, sometimes the media to say, but look, he or she knew details that only the true perpetrator would know, and therefore they must be guilty. Um, I think one of the iconic scenes from the first season of Making a Murder, which you probably remember better than I do, is the, the interrogators trying to get Brendan to talk about uh, what the perpetrator did to po- Teresa Halbeck's head and how the perpetrator allegedly killed her?
0: What else happens to her in her head? Extremely, extremely important you tell us this for us to believe you. Come on, Brendan, what else? We know we just need you to tell us.
1: That's all I can remember.
0: Alright, I'm just going to come out and ask you, who shot her in the head? He did?
2: Why didn't you tell us that? Uh, He couldn't get it right. And they keep pressuring him and pressuring him. He's guessing, he's getting it wrong, he's guessing, he's getting it wrong. And then finally they just tell him. Classic example of contamination. So all three of these things you see as commonalities in false confession cases. Um, uh, Misclassification error. Coercion error, individual vulnerabilities, and contamination, and also something we call scripting, where not only do they feed the details, but they often pressure and persuade the suspect to adopt a particular narrative that the person committed the act um, with a motive or intent that the interrogator believes occurred, which will make the confession more believable and, in many cases, um, get a higher charge and or longer sentence. Now, there are other patterns as well that one could talk about, but this is a way of thinking about the errors in sequence that police make in these um, interrogations that often lead to false confessions.
1: Yeah, I I think it's worth noting as well that in the Under the Hood analysis by Professor Levine and, and Dr. Sally Miles, they document that uh, I think it's around over 15,000 words came from the investigators versus just over 5,000 words that came from Brendan, which obviously speaks to the fact that this narrative came from the investigators.
2: And that's part of how American guilt presumptive interrogation works. They are trained to cut off denials, to interrupt, to repeatedly accuse and to suggest minimizing scenarios. Uh, And the idea in the Reed method and American interrogation is that, their theory, is that suspects, if they deny, are verbalizing verbalizing their anxiety. They're, they're, um, They're harder to get to confess if you let them deny. And so you should cut them off interrupt them and suggest these minimizing scenarios and pressure and persuade them to stop denying and start admitting. Brendan's case, you know, may be exceptional in, in, in the word ratio, you know, he's obviously a very passive person. Um, but you see, you see some version of this pattern in many, if not most interrogations in America, because police are trained to dominate the interaction and break down the denials until the suspect is moved to make or agree to an admission, and then they get the microphone, so to speak.
0: Well, today a judge heard arguments about Dassey's confession. And Anjanette Levy joins us now live from Manitowoc to walk with the details. Anjanette.
3: Tom, Brendan Dassey's current attorneys say he didn't get the proper representation before or during his trial and that the jury never heard just exactly how easily the teen could be prodded into confessing falsely. Today, the defense called its own expert who said that Dassey was more susceptible to coercion due to his age and low IQ. Dr. Richard Leo is an expert in false confessions and police interrogation techniques. Dr. Leo analyzed Brendan Dassey's statements to police and testified he believes psychologically coercive techniques were used.
2: You know, the police officers themselves may deny that it's a strategy that they're using or that, in their opinion, it rises to the level of a threat or a promise. But it, from, from from a behavioral point of view, the answer is yes, that... that we have observed that.
3: Dr. Leo pointed to segments of the four-hour tape where he believes investigators tried to induce the teenager to implicate himself in exchange for leniency. Leo says the cops also led Dassey to believe they knew more than they did.
0: Be yeah, We already know it's OK. We're going to help you through this, all right?
3: Dr. Leo testified Dassey was fed information by his interrogators and could have had prior knowledge from news accounts and family discussions. He said this contamination was never presented to the jury.
2: You really have to break it down to see contamination. I think jurors tend to get focused on the confession process itself.
0: Okay. And by break it down, you mean show them precisely on the interrogation tape where contamination occurs? Right, step by step. Leo
3: also said it's common in false confessions for children to recant to a parent shortly after confessing.
1: So you were retained by Professor Drizzen and you filed an affidavit in State versus DASI. You went on to testify at an evidentiary hearing in post-conviction in the January of 2010. How did you come to be involved?
2: Well, my recollection, now this is over a decade ago, is that uh, I met Professor Drizzen, who I've collaborated with and known for decades now, but I had met him at a conference uh, when he was... Um, he had been representing Brendan Dassey early on. And of course, Brendan's case was not a cause celeb or famous at that point. And so he spoke to me about the case and asked me if I would agree to work on it. And, and I did. So I, I only learned about the case through professor Drizzen and the center at Northwestern law school.
1: And had you been aware of Brendan's case prior to to this, I
2: you know I don't recall that I had I had been aware of Stephen Avery's case because uh, I had testified I believe in two thousand and six before the before a subcommittee of the Wisconsin State Legislature on reforming police interrogation techniques and I believe at that time Steve Avery was the first wrongfully convicted individual exonerated in the state of Wisconsin for. The rape of Penny Bernstein, and so Stephen Avery's case was very well known in the innocence community. I had worked on cases, not Steve Avery's case, but I'd worked on other cases with uh, Professor Keith Finley and others of the Wisconsin Innocence Project. They are excellent scholars and litigators, and so I was familiar with with Mr. Avery's case. But I, I do not believe I was familiar with Brendan Dassey's case.
1: And can you elaborate? a little for us on your findings that form the basis of your testimony in respect of the March 1st statement?
2: Well, my recollection, um, and I um, wrote this up in an elaborate report, which is posted on my SSRN webpage. So anybody who's interested can access this report for free. It's easily downloadable. SSRN stands for social science research network, and it's a free downloadable database of articles, social science and law review articles, Um, and so you would just enter Social Science Research Network, or SSRN, Um, you create a free account, which is easy, and then uh, you could enter anybody's name who has an SSRN webpage, and you'd see a long list of their articles or writings, and so in my case, one of the writings that my university has posted for me is the report that I wrote in the Brendan Dassey case. Just a side note, the famous American journalist, Malcolm Gladwell has repeatedly said that SSRN is one of his favorite resources. So there's a lot of interesting stuff up there. Um, So my, my report describes, first of all, I reviewed uh, a lot of materials, including pretrial and trial transcripts police reports and post conviction materials. And, Uh, I believe, and of course, the interrogations were recorded, which is fabulous, uh, that I believe that psychologically um, coercive techniques were used in Brendan Dassey's interrogations, some implied promises and threats. Um, I believe that Brendan Dassey was substantially at substantially higher risk for making or agreeing to a false confession in terms of his personality traits. He was young, he was naive, he was gullible. he functions at a lower intellectual and cognitive level than most individuals. Uh, And I also believe that the interrogation was rife with uh, contamination, with the feeding of non-public details that he spit back. He thought it was the only way he could go home. He did not understand the consequences of confessing uh, and uh, bowing to the pressure that was put on him by the police officers. And I think Brendan Dassey's confession manifests numerous indicia of unreliability. As you said at the beginning of the program, uh, there's really no evidence, independent evidence, corroborating his confession statement. And that is one of the central hallmarks uh, or patterns that you see in these false confession cases. Now, if there had been no recording the police would have said, as they always do when there's no recording, we didn't feed these facts. He independently supplied them. And I don't mean to impute um, malice to police officers. There's a well-known article by law professor Brandon Garrett in the United States documenting the subcategory of confession cases in the first 250 DNA exonerations and he finds, I believe, that there were 95% of those false confession cases. I think there were 40 of them among the first 250 DNA exonerations. Um, 95% of those, case, of those 40 cases where they were confessions, there was contamination. And he takes the position that this may have been inadvertent, that police may not have realized that they were inadvertently feeding details to the suspects who were then spitting them back, and then the police, not realizing they'd fed them, said, look, here's evidence that, that they are the true perpetrators. They know what only the true perpetrator would know. Thankfully, that didn't happen in Brandon's case because there was a recording. So they can deny all they want that, that it was rife with contamination, but we all know, anybody who watches those videos, as I document in my report, as the filmmakers in the first season of Making a Murderer documented in the portions of the interrogation of Brendan that they showed, that, that was just rife with contamination. Now, the, 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 the post-conviction issue, as I recall, you may recall this better than me, um, that first led the federal court to reverse his conviction, and then later to reinstate it, uh, was the issue of whether his confession was vol- involuntary or voluntary. And I believe that because it was psychologically coercive because there were implied threats and promises because he was so vulnerable that this was an involuntary statement and it should have been suppressed and his conviction should have been reversed and he should have been given a new trial. If the prosecution chose to retry him a new trial where they would not be able to rely on his confession Uh, I was disappointed as you know, the whole world was, I think that the seventh circuit appeared to completely botch their analysis of the case, just as the appellate courts, uh, and trial court in Wisconsin had, I think it's obvious to anyone or should be obvious to anyone that Brandon's, um, confession statement is not the valid basis for a conviction, uh, on a system that, that uh, says if there's any reasonable doubt, we should acquit uh, and certainly not a, a conviction that, that that that's a life sentence. So it's a terrible tragedy of injustice. Um, and the report, you know, documents the problems with the confession that I just mentioned.
1: Yeah. Just touching on the on banc. I think um, the dissent, there's a, a a statement of his confession was coerced, and thus it should not have been admitted into evidence and even if we are to overlook the coercion, the confession is so riddled with input from the police that it violates due process and I think it's interesting that we we had a definitive split at at the the en banc of four three does that speak to judicial ignorance in the, in the area of false confessions, or do you think perhaps that the the majority uh, were aligning themselves or hiding behind EDPA.
2: Well, it's interesting. I mean, one of the flaws of American case law, in my opinion, is that the substantive issue of innocence, there's very little room to challenge it through the appellate process. And so the issue was not really framed, as I understand it. It's been a long time since I read that Seventh Circuit opinion, the On banc one. But The issue wasn't framed as did he confess truthfully or falsely, but rather did he confess voluntarily or involuntarily? And the idea of voluntariness in American case law is was the person's will overborne? Um, That is a very abstract issue. Uh, It doesn't admit of any precise definition or precise analysis because at the end of the day, we can't get into somebody's head. It's really a philosophical issue. And even if we could, Um, you know, philosophers have argued, you know, you torture somebody, what could, and then they confess falsely, as lots of people have um, in human history, who've been subjected to torture. Uh, But they're still, in some sense, choosing to confess, right? I mean, not everyone tortured confesses. um, And some people, it takes a lot more torture. And so the whole idea of voluntariness is problematic and procedural in American law, and that's what they were deciding on, not whether they thought the confession was true or false. I do like that you pointed out in the dissent that it was not just that the dissenting justices thought the confession was involuntary, but also that it should be suppressed as a matter of due process, that he couldn't get a fair trial because it had been so contaminated, the confession, by the, um, by the police who are interrogating him. And that, you know, I I hope that body of law, or I hope a body of law that looks at how contamination, how when the police author the confession, um, script the confession, load the confession up with details that get spit back, how that violates a suspect's right to due process. Due process just means fairness and the right to a fair trial. And in the American criminal justice system, there is arguably no right more fundamental than the right to a fair trial. Uh, I think you're going to be talking about ineffective assistance of counsel next week. And the reason the right to effective counsel is so important in the American jurisprudential system is because you can't get a fair trial, you can't get due process without effective assistance. And so what I'm trying to say back to Brendan's case is that I hope the law in time will emphasize the law regulating the admissibility of confession evidence will emphasize more the due process right to a fair trial if tainted and contaminated Um, confession evidence is admitted as it was in Brendan's case that hasn't gotten a lot of traction but I completely agree with the dissent and I am um, encouraged by people like you and many others across the world who keep the flame going to get Brendan Dassey out of prison.
1: Would you agree that confirmation bias was in play for the investigators in this case?
2: Yes I think the investigators had a theory and it was a premature theory, and they rushed to judgment on Brendan and their goal became to get the evidence that fit the theory, not to find evidence find the evidence wherever it led them, whether toward or away from their pre-existing theory. Uh, and so they assumed that Brendan had to have been involved. They really had no evidence at all that he was involved. It was complete speculation. Uh, And they made a case around him.
0: Okay. We don't get honesty here. I'm your friend right now. But I I got to believe in you. And if I don't believe in you, I can't go to bat for you. Okay? You're nodding. Tell us what happened. Your mom said you'd be honest with us. She's behind you 100% no matter what happens yeah, here. That's what she said. Because she thinks you know more, too. We're in your corner. We already know what happened. They'll tell us exactly. Don't lie. We can't say it for you, Brad. Okay?
2: Now, confirmation bias, of course, is that phenomenon where we are consciously or subconsciously searching out evidence in our environment that confirms our pre-existing beliefs or theories and consciously or subconsciously excluding evidence that does not um, or diminishing or downplaying or discounting evidence that does not. And so I think, I think they were in the throes of confirmation bias sometimes described as tunnel vision um, or with tunnel vision. Uh, And they set out to get a confession to prove their theory that Brendan Dassey must've been involved and they succeeded because of their coercive techniques, their contamination, the misclassification, uh, and um, the scripting.
1: Yeah. And if investigators have to feed uh, a theory and facts of a crime to the person they're interrogating, surely that's a red flag, even to them. Is the absence of correction that we see in Brendan's case and so many other cases due to a lack of awareness or is it a systemic fault with the interrogation
2: technique? Well. It's interesting because of the three errors that I mentioned, misclassification, coercion, and contamination, um, the one that the law enforcement community agrees with us on is contamination. So their manuals say, don't feed a suspect details of the crime. Um, if the suspect is guilty, they should be able to give you the details. Let them give you the details so we can verify the accuracy of the crime. and Moreover, hold back some non public details so that uh, you can say you held them back, and if they provide those details, you've corroborated the confession. So, there's something funny going on in law enforcement. They're acknowledging the norm or guideline, the uh, protocol, best practice that you don't feed suspects details. But yet we see this all the time in these false confession, and even non-false confession cases, not just in Brendan's case. Uh, I think that the police, I think it's systemic. I'll tell you why. The police are trained to presume a suspect's guilt. And once they've decided the suspect's guilty, they're not trying to figure out whether the suspect did it anymore. They've already decided. So that institutionalizes, so to speak, confirmation bias and tunnel vision in the interrogation process. It is defined by confirmation bias and tunnel vision when you tell interrogators that the goal of an interrogation is to get a confession from somebody you've already determined to be guilty. Also, in America, it's very common for police to lie about evidence, as I think I mentioned earlier, and if they have evidence they don't lie about it. They, you know, they, they use it. So you know, we got your fingerprints or we have you on a video camera. When police confront a suspect with evidence, whether it's truthful or false evidence, they assume that the person is guilty and the person knows that the, knows that evidence and will respond to, Oh, you got me. I'm caught and therefore I'll confess. And they often in their training will you know, talk about the, 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 the iconic image of the child being caught with their hand in the cookie jar, right? So you're caught with your hand in the cookie jar, and now you have to confess. Just like they say, we've got your fingerprints or your co-defendant ratted you out, and now you have no choice but to confess. What they don't realize is when they confront suspects with evidence because they presume, real or imagined, because they presume the suspect is guilty, they are often feeding the suspect details. So this is exactly what happened in that Clip from Making a Murder from the excerpt from the interrogation. They couldn't get Brendan to guess how Teresa Hal- Halbach was injured in her head. And so, so they just told him, right? And they thought they were telling a guilty person what the guilty person already knew. But if the person is not guilty, they're feeding the person facts. And then when the person feeds them back, It gets incorporated into the confession, and this leads to wrongful convictions. So it's, in my opinion, it's systemic in that sense. Maybe I'd say structural. It's it's inherent to the nature and practice of American police interrogation in the uh, 21st century, even if there's no malicious or bad motive on police officers who violate the prohibition against contamination
1: and why do you I, I think we touched on this before, but why do you think confessions exert such a powerful influence not only on investigators but on witnesses and and ultimately and tragically the jury, even in the absence of corroborative evidence
2: there's there's something about among people 's common sense there's something about having hearing it from The words of somebody's own mouth that even they admitted. Um, I think the idea is that you would never admit to something that's false because it's irrational, it's self-destructive, it makes no sense. And so if you've admitted it, it must be true. And therefore, if somebody has confessed, they must be guilty. Why else would somebody confess if they didn't do the crime? Now, the problem is that Most people don't know about false confession cases. They haven't been interrogated. They haven't made a false confession themselves. And so it's outside of their common experience. But this is a very interesting question because confessions are in a category of evidence we would call testimonial. And testimonial evidence, whether it's eyewitness evidence, um, whether it's confession evidence, whether it's informant evidence, it's inherently fallible. People are not good historians. People often have motives to falsify or exaggerate information. Uh, And in the case of confessions, people are often coerced or intimidated or browbeaten into making or agreeing to false statements to please their interrogators. So um, it's curious that people put so much weight on it. But I think the reason is that there's a cultural idea that it's so... It's it's so over the top, self-destructive and irrational that no one would falsely confess unless they're tortured or mentally ill.
0: What happened if his story is different? What do you mean? Like if his story is like different, like I never did nothing or something. Did you? Huh? Not really. What do you mean, not really? They got to my head.
1: Why do you think the judicial system is so risk averse to the notion of a false confession? I can understand you know, lay people like myself, not, not having an understanding of why people falsely confess, even though I think making a murderer has probably changed that um, for millions of people across the world. But the system itself obviously must recognize a problem with false confessions. Why do you think it's, it's risk averse?
2: I think that the American judicial system is inherently conservative particularly in post-conviction. And so prior to a jury verdict, the pretrial and trial process, the American system leaves it to the jury and in theory um, sets a high bar by saying if you have any reasonable doubt, you must acquit. And I think that gives judges, trial judges and appellate judges, false confidence in the accuracy of the results And I think it means post-conviction that they presume guilt because you've been convicted by a jury of your peers if your case has gone to trial, who all agreed there was no reasonable doubt in that trial. And so I think they're inherently conservative because they inherently assume that the process was fair, the person can challenge anything that's unfair, and they inherently assume that the process is likely to be accurate since the reasonable doubt standard is such a high bar.
1: And if it's true, just to to talk briefly about Brendan's trial counsel. So if it's true that poor lawyering passes muster for Sixth Amendment purposes, what should Brendan's trial counsel have done to defend a false confession case more vigorously than they obviously did?
2: Well, I'm at a loss to understand why they did not call an expert. Um, I'm I'm at a loss to understand why trial counsel in that case did not vigorously contest his confession at a pretrial suppression motion and at the trial. So they should have argued that it was false and unreliable, they should have gotten experts or used experts that were already available to them and they should have argued more vigorously that it was a false confession if their more vigorous argument at the suppression hearing would not have resulted in the suppression or exclusion of the confession. If you are a defense attorney and you either believe or have good reason to believe that your client's confession is false or tainted, you need to take the bull by the horn you can assume you've got a hard case and the jury is likely going to convict your client. And so you need to be very, very aggressive in how you litigate the confession evidence and challenge it and present your client's innocence to the jury. And I just, it's been a long time since I've looked at trial counsel's handling of this case, but my recollection is, is they really did not do that. And if you want a model for how the case should have been litigated at trial, you've got two different models. One is the defense that Dean Strang and Jerry Buting gave Stephen Avery at his trial. They are both first-rate, excellent lawyers, among the best in the state of Wisconsin. They aggressively litigated Steve Avery's case. Had they litigated or defended, rather, Brendan's case, I think he would have gotten uh, an entirely different level of defense and very likely would have been acquitted. Um, And another model would be um, Professor Steve Drizzen and and Laura Nyrider, uh, who of course are now well known like Dean Strang and Jerry Buting through the making of Murder Netflix docuseries. Uh, They too are excellent lawyers. They're not really trial lawyers in the way that Uh, Dean Strang and Jerry Buting are, uh, but they are excellent lawyers. And if you look at how they've litigated Brendan's appeals post-conviction, you can easily imagine how they would have provided a first-rate defense to Brendan uh, should should they have been his trial counsel or should they defend in in the event that his conviction gets reversed and the prosecution retries.
1: Yeah. Numerous studies have demonstrated that Obviously, juveniles are susceptible to giving false confessions. We see this with Brendan and many other juveniles. With what is known about the the juvenile brain, why do we not question kids differently?
2: Yeah, you know, that's a good question. Uh, We know a lot about the juvenile brain now. The last 15 years of uh, research on adolescence that juveniles are psychosocially immature that they are naive and gullible, they're impulsive, they take greater risks, they don't fully understand the relation between cause and consequence, uh, and their brain continues to develop into their early and Uh, mid-20s. You know, there's really no excuse because the American system is designed to treat juveniles differently. It's supposed to be a rehabilitative system, and it seems to me the last decade or two of Research on the adolescent brain should, be, sh- should strengthen the juvenile justice system and strengthen our belief that when people 18 and over are tried in the adult system, they, they need to be treated differently because the brain is still developing and they are still more vulnerable for a host of reasons, some of which I just mentioned. So I, I don't know. I mean, sometimes what you see in criminal justice is generational change that the kind of people who are taking undergraduate classes now at colleges and learning about adolescent brain development and will go on to be lawyers and then judges, maybe in 20 years, they will be saying the same thing at a critical mass and the, the practice of judging in America will change and some of the standards will change. But I don't have a good explanation for your question because I, I agree with the premise of it it's often the case that it takes the legal system a long time to catch up with the social science research.
1: Yeah, and I suppose we saw, you know, the Supreme Court denied Brendan's writ of certiorari, and that would have been an opportunity to have looked at the juvenile justice process, you know, for the first time, and I think it was 40 years. But obviously they declined to do that.
2: Yeah, although it's important to remember that, um the United States Supreme Court only takes cert or accepts cases, and I think it's 1%, it might be less than 1%, it might be a little above 1%, it might be one tenth of 1%, but an extremely small fraction of cases. And so the Supreme Court is never for anyone, um, you know, a good, a good safeguard. So if you get to that stage in the process, you can pretty much assume your case is over. Now, you know, there there are other systems, the Italian system, you know, they have Supreme Court that is essentially many Supreme Courts, uh, and everybody will get their case heard by the Supreme Court of Italy if they appeal it far enough up the ladder. Um, It's a different model of the Supreme Court, but in the United States, almost nobody gets their case held by the Supreme Court, uh, heard by the Supreme Court. And I, I say that just you know, I wish Brendan's case had been heard. I wish they had used it to not only revisit his case, but revisit juvenile law, juvenile confession law. But um, we don't want to unfairly criticize them by, you know, somebody w- w- were to think, well, you know, they take a lot of cases. They don't.
1: Yeah. No, absolutely. And the, the point of the matter is that Brendan's case should have been corrected at a state
2: level. Absolutely. Well,
1: we can take it back further and his confessions should have been suppressed.
2: Absolutely.
1: He should have gone home on March the 1st, 2006.
2: Yes. I agree.
1: Do you have any last thoughts regarding Brendan that you could share with people following his case?
2: Well, um, I guess I would say, you know, in addition to false confessions, I've also studied wrongful convictions and uh, for decades, even before there were innocence projects and, If you look at the history of wrongful convictions in America, there have been thousands of them, you know, going back a couple hundred years. One pattern that you see is that it's usually not people inside the system, but it's usually people outside the system whose agitation gets innocent people out of prison. Journalists, documentary filmmakers, lawyers who take the case pro bono, uh, academic scholars who write about them you know, podcasters, Um, and so what I would say is to those people listening, to those people who um, are outraged by Brendan Dassey's conviction, you gotta, you gotta keep putting pressure on the governor, or, you know, if, if putting pressure is not your thing, um, creating media conversations, and outlets, and web pages, petitions, you know, Talking to journalists, um, you know, when a book comes out about the case, uh, buying the book, you know, anything to keep Brendan's case alive. Letters to the editor, uh, letters to the lawyers, uh, support, uh, contributions to websites that uh, describe, discuss his case. Anything to keep this case alive and to remind the world that you believe he's an innocent man, really a boy at the time, wrongly convicted, who should be released immediately because the conviction was based on tainted, flawed, and unreliable evidence. Uh, There's a tendency for a lot of people to lose interest in these types of cases after they're no longer in the headlines or, you know, part of a phenomenon like the Making a Murderer docuseries. So I would just encourage all of Brendan's supporters to keep the fire alive and to keep reminding the world of this horrible injustice, which someday has to be reversed.
1: Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for your time, Dr. Leo.
2: Well, thank you, um, Tracy. It's been my pleasure to be on, on this show and... I hope that everyone listening will continue to keep Brendan's case in mind and and advocate on behalf of his release.
1: investigators made my skin crawl watching this video, this lulling behavior that they conveyed, which was so dishonest, so dishonest, um, with such a vulnerable person, it was not what I would call an interrogation, it was a, you know, tell me what I want to hear.